0: morning, everybody. My name is Casey Burledge, and I'm a senior counsel with Clyde & Co.'s Marine Group here in New York. And on behalf of Clyde & Co., I just want to thank everybody for attending this year's Capital Link Forum, and I'd also like to thank each of our panel members here to my left. I'm not sure if we have We might have one more, but uh, <laughs> we're going to go ahead. Uh, with the four that we have, uh, to my immediate left, we have Adrian Tolson, who's a senior partner from 2020 Marine Energy. And sitting next to him is Greg Schwartz, who is the Director of Strategic Development for Aegean Bunkering USA, um, who will give his comments from the physical supplier side of things. And next to him, we have Mark Refso-Home, is the leader of the U.S. Fuel Desk for Maersk Oil Trading. Who will provide his comments from the owner operator's perspective? And at the end, there we have Mikhail Shapiro, who's Glencore Limited's marine fuels manager, um, and who will offer us his comments from from the trader's perspective as well. So, upon discussing the title of today's panel, which is uh, Marine Fuels and Industry in Transition, uh, we identified three topics that we'll be covering today. Uh, The panelists said that uh, no panel with this title would be complete without discussing the IMO's decision to implement a global sulfur cap uh, to burn 0.5% low sulfur marine fuel beginning in 2020. Uh, Second, we're going to have a brief discussion regarding the issue of declining margins in both physical bunkers and bunker trading. And finally, uh, we'll discuss briefly the role of technology in the marine fuel industry with a focus on mass flow meters in Singapore and other ports. So we have a quite, quite a bit to cover today, uh, but we hope to leave a few minutes at the end for a few questions for our panel members. Um, and with that, I'm going to turn to our first topic. Now, the IMO's decision to implement a 0.5% sulfur cap on marine fuel in 2020 is arguably one of the industry's most defining moments in recent memory. Based on experience from the regulations for low sulfur fuel in the emission control areas, which came into force in 2015, it appears that the majority of the owner and operators have opted for the fuel switch from residual fuel to marine gas oil. My first question is for Mark. Um, Mark, can the industry expect a similar response to the global sulfur cap, and do you believe that that will be the easiest route to compliance with the regulations by 2020?
1: It will definitely be the easiest route, <clears throat> but I think that um, it will be a two-tier or even a three-tier solution, so I think you'll see a lot of the big carriers like Maskline and some of their competitors in the, in the shipping space. Probably go for a uh, hybrid solution, a a 0.5 blended fuel oil barrel. And then you'll see a lot of the tanker operators and some of the smaller ships go for a uh, MGO based solution. And then, of course, you have the big question mark of uh, how big a uh, percentage of the solution scrubbers will be. Right. Thank you. But the main point there being two different grades 0.5 fuel oil and MGO for different types of operators.
0: We have to expect this will have some some effect on prices and uh, and Adrian, I would ask you what effect would the anticipated shift in demand away from residual fuel have on the mgo prices worldwide
2: now that is a big question, <laughs> but uh, you know essentially you have to. Believe that if there's, a, if there's an increased demand in distillate material, whether it's be blended into 0.5 or used as MGO, DMA type material, then obviously you'd expect a higher demand that will push up the price in or The only thing you have to look in perspective is for the marine component of the world diesel market. It's only about a six or seven percent component. If all the bunkers were shifted over. That are currently used in residual fuel shifted into diesel so uh, you know it's six percent seven percent of that market i mean that's significant but is it as significant does it push up that diesel price globally as much as one would think it would the other the, the, the more obvious impact is clearly is there's not enormous uptake on scrubbers is that residual fuel will be oversupplied, dis, uh, probably even distress oversupplied post 2020, and that may work its way out as refiners uh, come along, but you can certainly expect a significant drop in the price of residual fuel.
0: Thank you very much. Now, Mikhail, what, uh, what other consequences do you think that the market can expect from these increased costs for compliant fuel? Um, for example, do you think buyers would need an increased level of credit?
3: Well I think if you look historically rising prices is nothing new to the shipping industry. We've gone through many waves where a flat price will go up or down in this particular case uh, this price change will come with a actual change to the way shipping is done and to the way vessels handle the fuels on board, which will be definitely something that's of question for many owners and as Mark pointed out, every owner will find their own solution on how to do it, whether they'll uh, choose to burn gas hull, which is probably one of the most expensive solutions, or scrubbers, which uh, have their economic uh, strategies, or whether they'll deal with hybrid fuels, which will have their own complications in terms of uh, different qualities. But you will have definitely an impact on uh, credit, as prices will rise, and whatever happens, ship owners will pay more for fuel come 2020. So that will definitely be an impact, and a strategy needs to be in place for every owner or how they will handle it, particular to their own fleet. Thank you.
0: Yeah, and and as far as the strategies, now uh, I would ask uh, Greg, do you think that the market's preparing for this global sulfur cap now, or uh, and if so, what's what steps do you think people are making to prepare for it?
4: Um, from from the ship owner standpoint, I'm sure they're preparing, but they're not really acting. They're thinking about it. They're analyzing it. They're studying it. Um, the uptake on, on scrubbers has happened on a small scale. Um, but it certainly hasn't been anything uh, we could really highlight. From a supplier perspective and even a refiner perspective, very little has been de- being done. Suppliers don't need to enact change th- this far in advance. Um, we could change over systems in a relatively short period of time. We're talking about uh, 30 to 60 days. So um, there's, uh, there's no room in the supplier's economic model today to do anything in advance. Um, We're kind of struggling along with the shipping uh, industry in terms of uh, margins and uh, demand. So um, I would say no, but we'll be ready when we need to be ready.
0: Great. Thanks very much. Now, there's been quite a bit of discussion about alternatives um, to burning the compliant fuel, such as exhaust gas cleaning technology, (coughs) scrubbers, or LNG. Um, and all of these appear to have their drawbacks. Now, Adrian, I would ask you, um, the lack of LNG infrastructure appears to be a significant barrier of entry for mainstream acceptance. Do you believe that this is still the case? And uh, could you explain what some of those uh, restrictions are and whether you think there might be a change in the near future?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean. Th- LNG is clearly a, a viable fuel for use in marine, and, and you know, from a price point of view, there are some arguments to be made for it just at the sort of the wholesale price of LNG. The issue really with LNG becomes the delivery component of actually getting it, and I say delivery, and that means every component of getting it from a pipeline somewhere or, or a storage facility somewhere. To a marine location where it can be put on board a barge, probably a, a purpose-built barge, and then delivered to a ship. And these are a lot of complexities, and none of this infrastructure truly exists. It exists in small pilot projects, as I uh, lost leader projects, if you like, mostly done by major oil companies and port authorities. And at this moment, uh, we're we're sort of we're stuck with that solution. It's not an economically viable solution at this point. Now. If, if the market builds itself, there's more volume done, then some of these pot projects could perhaps be paid for. But again, I, I think it's going to be long term before shipping views this as the lower co- lowest cost solution to compliance. It will be a solution that's chosen for other reasons, whether it be public perception or, or, or perhaps their LNG carriers, for example. But I think from, from a general overall perspective, this is not going to be seen anytime soon.
0: Thanks, thank you very much. Uh, I, would, I would just like to introduce our fifth panel member who, who's joined us, um, John Lacours from Dorian LPG. And this next question is for him, uh, since we're talking about alternatives. And I would ask, uh, what might be the opportunities for suppliers uh, dealing in these types of products, such as LPG um, and some other alternative blends? And what might be some of the difficulties
5: in creating these blends? Thank you, Casey. Thank you for the introduction. I'm sorry I'm late. Uh, yeah, there is uh, a push by mainly by the engine manufacturers to um, uh, enable engines to burn alternative fuels. Uh, there are uh, LNG engines already in operation, uh, and uh, methanol engines in operation, and ethane engines in operation. LPG is the next in line, it's going to happen in a year or two. Uh, and uh, I, I believe that uh, this is the, the, the horse that drags the, the cart in a way, because we need engines that will be able to operate in alternative fuels besides what we have right now, which is the uh, uh, regular fuel oils and distillates. Uh, so uh, the, the industry sees 2020 as an opportunity to widen up this uh, uh, alternative fuel uh, venue uh, be able to 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 utilize these fuels and i think we're going to have a a segregated market where some users uh, will be uh, uh, will be uh, utilizing their cargo as uh, as a means of marine fuel their their own ships Uh, for example the lng uh, carriers naturally will uh, tend to uh, to have lng engines in their in their operation uh, methanol, similar, ethane carriers will do the same, and uh, we will do the same with LPG. So, uh, the infrastructure is another story, though. You mentioned that, and that's a, a serious uh, uh, problem for the wider shipping uh, fleet. Uh, the LNG carriers, we know, they go to terminals; they can do, they can take care of themselves. Methanol, the same. Ethane, the same. LPG, the same. Um, the, the wider use of alternative fuels is going to be a challenge. Uh, LNG, granted there's no real infrastructure, they're just building it right now, it may be ready in, in maybe uh, a few years uh, to, to to take care of uh, some ships that are, some container ships, some alternative other ships that have been thinking about LNG. But I believe uh, methanol is an easier fuel to use, it's easier to uh, uh, store and handle uh, it's a supply issue uh, on the methanol ethane eh, same it's uh, you have to go to a dedicated terminal otherwise you are unable to find ethane uh, difficult to carry uh, you need an LNG ship to carry the ethane and uh, I think LPG is a much easier fuel because we've been carrying it and there are small ships where Uh, doing ship-to-ship operations all the time, uh, it would be an easier uh, opportunity for people to consider uh, with storage on deck being also uh, an easier solution than an LNG solution. So even though I am maybe uh, uh, leaning towards LPG because this is the business in which we are involved in, uh, I can tell you that there is about a Uh, 1,000 places in the world that can take LPG or can deliver LPG, and there's a lot of small ships that can do this kind of operation and uh, bunker LPG to uh, a customer. So, um, But I think overall a big picture is that uh, alternative fuels will play a a very serious role and uh, have become quite attractive price-wise and economically feasible. And when the engine manufacturers come out with the ability to retrofit engines um, that are electronic already into uh, alternative fuels, that will be uh, the day when we will. And I think 2020 is nearly there in in that. Terrific,
0: thank you. Mikhail, what are your views on some of these low sulfur alternatives?
3: Um, So for us as a, as a commodity trader, we deal with a variety of uh, different streams across the petroleum space as well as uh, probably over 90 other commodities. And from what we have seen in studies and estimates, the uptake is fairly limited on alternative fuels. It's usually uh, based around shorter routes. It's based around vessels that are capable of uh, carrying such products. And uh, industry itself uh, takes a very long time to adapt and partially because uh, the shipping industry is comprised of so many different players. You have owned vessels, you have uh, chartered vessels, you have chartered and rechartered vessels. There's so many alternatives and so many chains of custody that there are many alternatives and just because something say a scrubbers would economically make a lot of sense now to a lot of people. If you run the math, a lot of owners are hesitant to do it because they don't own The cargo on board or maybe the vessel is chartered out to somebody else so the charterer can't turn around and uh, get the owner to put a scrubber on so in that sense a lot of people will turn to the most mainstream solutions and if you look historically what has happened is if you already had you have an eco already in europe you have and it's probably the largest market where this uh, 0.1 fuel oil this ulsfo trades the new grade coming online is going to be vlsfo uh And that's going to be the 0.5 fuel oil. So if you look at the way the ship owners have handled ECAs, the ones where it made sense for them to stay in in that ECA for a long time, they've put on scrubbers or they're burning this uh, ultra low sulfur fuel oil. So they're finding the cheapest component that they can burn in their ships with minimal amount of impact. When you take this to this global scale, there will probably be a much bigger difference in what kind of fuels are available regionally. And a lot of owners are hesitant to take different fuels in different ports. So it's important that, I guess, as an owner and as a bunker buyer, you deal with uh, companies that are global, that are solid, and uh, that are vertically integrated, uh, like ourselves and many other companies out there that are able to provide global solutions. That's important. But in terms of the streams that are available, they're going to vary. And if you look at what some of the owners did, they put scrubbers on, and uh, some of them got waivers from the EPA to put the scrubbers on and they were able to maintain, I don't know if this will happen in 2020, but there's a possibility for that as well. The easiest thing for most of the vessels that are constructed today is to continue to burn high sulfur. It's from many different standpoints, including handling the fuel on board and how the engines are designed, and Mark can speak more to that. Whether that's viable or not viable in 2020, the only way to keep burning high sulfur is to have some kind of abatement technology, such as a scrubber. Right. If not, you have to go to other solutions, such as gas oil, if you have a limited amount of bunker tanks or whatever, or uh, ultra-low sulfur fuel oil, very low sulfur fuel oil.
0: Terrific. That's a perfect transition for a question for, for Mark about scrubbers. Um, do you believe that the initial costs for this technology on retrofits are simply too prohibitive? And, and what are the approaches being being looked at for scrubber technology?
1: It's, um, I think if you if you <laughs> if you do the NPV on it and use the assumptions that most people use today, the scrubber you can't look great. Your payback is anywhere from 18 months to two years. Um, having said that, Mask is not on the scrubber team, and uh, I know there might be people even in this room who. Uh, can't really understand that, but there are several reasons for that. We have uh, operational concerns, Uh, we still haven't seen scrubbers being proven technology on a two-stroke diesel engine the size of our engines, one, Uh, two, we do not believe that open loop scrubber system is actually going to be the solution, I think maybe short term and then very quickly uh, the world of shipping will be forced to go to a closed loop uh, system. (coughs) And a closed loop system is a completely different calculation. I mean, then you have an infrastructure issue, you have a cost issue of getting rid of the effluent, so it's a completely different econ. Um, then we also have an issue with Scrubbers is that what we always aim for is a level playing field. And we, we feel that the Scrubber technology potentially allows uh, an open door for uh, different operators to maybe run the scrubber, maybe not run the scrubber when you're outside port limits. Um, we think there will be a major, major compliance issue uh, and, a, and an enforcement of the regulations issue. Uh, and therefore, we, we, we fear a little bit uh, that situation. Uh, whereas a 0.5 fuel oil world or a 0.5 diesel world is a much more of a level playing field. Um, and we don't, I mean, in terms of handling different low-sulfur fuel oil stream, I mean, we, we've done it with the Ekerzone, we were some of the first to burn 0.1 fuel oil, um, so we are aware that you know, the 0.5 fuel oil streams will come from many different areas and, and, and you'll have different components making it into the blends, but that's something that we feel we can handle uh, with a proper process in advance of uh, switching over to it.
0: Excellent. Thanks very much, Mark. I want to switch over quickly to the uh the impact of these regulations on refining activities. And and Adrian, I'd ask you, um what do you think these impacts might be on refining activities and uh specifically those refineries that focus on residual fuel?
2: Um pretty significant level of impact and if you're a refiner, I mean most of the the big producers of residual fuel nowadays and, and Maybe aware of this, are, uh, the refineries, apart from a few exceptions, tend to be in countries that really can't afford to invest in, in refining infrastructure, which is Mexico, Venezuela, uh, to a certain degree, certain parts of Russia, um, Iran. Um, the, um, the, the because of this, they're going to have a major problem. Uh, their ability to to sell residual fuel, their ability to refine their products, are going to be impacted significantly post 2020. And uh, you know, they could be in a situation, and we go back to the price question, where they're faced with literally a disposal issue of uh, giving away residual fuel simply asking someone to take it away and use it somewhere because there is no alternative for them just to keep the refinery going. So, I mean, you could see that question, you know, refiners will obviously shift. They will try and shift into, into sweeter crudes, into lower sulfur crudes, trying to get out of this bind. But if you're a national refiner and your base fuel is a high sulfur resi- high sulfur f- crude oil, you're not really going to be able to shift, uh, say as, for example, what we, as we see in Mexico. So the the pressure on refiners is pretty enormous. I mean there's plenty of other domestic refineries also that are significant producers of high sulfur fuel oil. Certainly in North America there are, there are a number that will produce high sulfur fuel and will continue to produce high sulfur fuel oil and, and the issue will be there for them too but less than it will be on a national scale. So overall a significant impact for those who produce residual fuel. Those who produce uh, large amounts of distillate have sources of low sulfur Residual fuel; those more modern refineries that have cokers full conversion refineries, much better situation. So, if you look globally in the refining industry, you have to look to Asia, Middle East, uh, Indian subcontinent, certain degree where all these new refineries were built in the last ten to fifteen years, and now or even currently being built. And will will play will be enormous benefit to those refiners is the fact that the main product or well the main products they produce, diesel, will suddenly be in higher demand. So expect a big shift in that respect in refining strength and I you know Mikhail can comment more about it but expect difference in the shift of flows of oil too Um, this is more of a trading question but if you look at the current flow of cargo going on right now in in the world of residual fuel it's effectively a west to east trade you know particularly from Europe to Asia Uh, if you go there is some movement from the Caribs of course into Asia as well but this will tend to shift around. These whole trade patterns will shift around because if your largest producer of distillate are suddenly sitting in uh, in Asia, sorry, Asia, Middle East, and Indian subcontinent, the flow of distillate will tend to go out from there to other parts of the world to supply the marine fuel business, and the residual will stay at home.
0: Terrific. Thanks. Thank you. Um, next question is for Greg, and Greg, I would ask: Do you agree that the market will expect a, or can expect a surplus of residual, residual fuel? Once these regulations take effect, and if so, what impact do you think will ha- that'll have on the bunkering and shipping business?
4: Yeah, I mean residual fuel is going to be a, a, a badly hurt commodity. It's going to be um, uh, very cheap, and if you're able to burn it with, you know, like a, a scrubber abatement technology, or if you're going to cheat and burn it, it's going to be extremely cheap. Um, the uptick on diesel, Adrian had mentioned, I think is. He, he downplayed it, but I, I also see every off-spec diesel component going into bunker fuel blending. So your VGOs that typically feed uh, refining as a feedstock, and your light cycle oils, which typically exp- expand the, the pool of um, good diesel um, for um, refiners, is going to get competition from the bunker uh, blenders and the suppliers. Um, I think the shift is... You know, I've heard, uh, Adrian mentioned six, seven percent. I've heard as much as 10 to 12 percent increase in demand for global diesel, which is going to affect your trucks. (laughs) It's going to affect your power plants. It's going to affect every industry that uses diesel. Um, Residual fuel is going to get extremely cheap. And uh, Adrian had mentioned about trading pattern changes. What's interesting is the lightest, sweetest crudes that can put out products that meet this. Are in places where the most complex refining systems are and the heavier sour crudes are in places where the weaker refining simpler refining systems are in place so I could potentially see crude uh, significantly changing direction with much more US exports of crude out and much more heavy sour imports in so that the complex refineries that don't make residual fuel oil can consume the heavier sour much cheaper crudes, and the simpler refineries would have to buy the lighter, sweeter crudes from the U.S. Bakken and shale place.
0: Terrific. Thanks very much for your thoughts on that, Greg. That's helpful. Um, Mark, one last question on on, uh, sulfur regs uh, for you. It appears that the penalties for noncompliance will be relatively minor compared to potentially millions of dollars needed to implement scrubbers. Cleaner fuels. Might these lighter fines tempt owners to, so maybe ignore the regulations, or is the threat of pressure by the European and U.S. port authorities, you think, going to be enough to ensure compliance?
1: It's a uh, it's a big topic for us uh, enforcement of, of the regulations and uh, the, you know, the size of the fines is is one element, uh, but there are many different elements that play into it. Right? How do you execute? How do you monitor this? Like do you use sniffers? Do you do every port state? Do you have to check the actual the, the sulfur level in the tanks and then the size of the fines? So we're working with regulators, uh, of course uh, Danish maritime authorities, but also other countries uh, around the world to ensure that we have not only a strict enforcement policy but also coherent because another issue is that parts of the world might go with one solution and others might not. So so again, for us, it's all about level playing field and transparency. So we're doing everything we can, um, again, not to sort of hurt ourselves, but just to make sure that it's a transparent and, uh, and fair system.
0: Terrific. Thank you very much. I think we're going to switch topics now due to the time here. Um, I'd like to jump into the role of technology um, with a focus on the mass flow meters. And uh, the first question I have is, is for for Mikhail. Um, now these these mass flow meters they've been compulsory in Singa- Singapore as of uh, the beginning of this year, and and I understand that Glencore has implemented mass flow meters on its barges there as well as in Fugira. Um What feedback has the market received from uh, the implementation implementation of these devices?
3: Well, I think overall the f- uh, feedback has been very good. Uh, Singapore was uh, I think a big beneficiary, they haven't really lost uh, any volume and they've uh, been able to maintain a higher level of delivery system. Uh, in uh, Fujairah, again, it's the same thing. Anytime you enter a transit port, uh, mass flow meters allow for a faster <laughs> delivery, uh, more accurate delivery, and there's, I mean, there's no reason not to have that. Uh, the U.S. is a, a little bit different. That's more my er- area of expertise, but in the U.S. it's a little bit different because the, of the Jones Act and who actually owns the vessels. But certainly, uh, it's a welcome change to a lot of places in the world. It is difficult to do in places where the Port Authority doesn't mandate it, because uh, you're essentially required to run to your own uh, to your own or a major accepted standard, which our barges are uh, to a major standard, and I think a lot of people that have used that found that to be a very efficient and effective way to take bunkers and a faster way to take bunkers.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, John, I'd ask you, John LaCouris, uh, what, uh, what is your experience with mass flow meters? Do you have any comments on, uh, on those sure.
5: in your business? Sure, well, I, I do. We, we have actually proactively installed uh, mass flow meters on the bunker lines of all our new building vessels. There are 19 vessels that we have installed mass flow meters as a precursor to having an additional uh, point of reference when we take bunkers. Uh, an additional help for the crew when they take bunkers Uh, and I think that uh, more owners will be doing this, Uh, not only the uh, suppliers but also the owners and the ships will be using mass flow meters as a means of helping the crew uh, do uh, their job in a more correct way. Uh, We understand that bunkers have the problems of temperature delivery and density and cause uh, shortages and cause uh, differences between barges and owners. It's been an eternal problem, and we wanted to be proactive in installing mass flow meters, which are computer controlled, and that can help the crew identify if there are significant shortages, in which case they could call the the local port authorities to to help them out, or the inspector that comes on board. And at one more point, I'm sorry to go back to to my colleague here, Mark. uh, We do have scrubbers on our ships and uh, they do record every time that the scrubber is used at any part of the world. They use with the GPS of the ship. So there's just no doubt that the authorities will know the moment that you have used your scrubber to come into the area or exit. So there's just no doubt about cheating because those equipments are fully compliant and they are able to identify with pinpoint accuracy where the ship was at that particular time and what she was burning.
0: Thank you very much. Um, Adrian, quick question for you on this point. Um, do you think that the implementation of mass flow meters will be adopted in other ports beyond uh, what we're seeing in Singapore and Fujairah?
2: Um, I'm, s- I'm sure in time, yes. I mean, I think it comes down to an issue of the, uh, the willingness of local governments, port authorities, um, you know, customs and excise weights and measures whatever they call themselves um, in the sense of and how to regulate this i think part of the issue has been in singapore it was relatively easy to do of course is is one sort of single unit of government operating um, you know, I know there's certainly enough interest in, say, the Port of Rotterdam to do this, but the Port of Rotterdam never doesn't want to enter into the commercial transaction. And in a lot of Western uh, countries, that you know, Western uh, countries, that certainly is a major issue that that they're not used to regulating this type of industry, and it's very difficult to get involved. So regulation will be voluntary. It's a little bit like the same discussion as as compliance with scrubbing, and not, you know, will the will the governments get involved? You know. There, for just on going back to the scrubbers section, on scrubbers, you depend on port state control to, to right. uh, not sorry, but not flag state control right. to monitor what's going on. And so, that's obviously a questionable issue depending on the flag state and how they're responding to this issue. You are asking port state control, which is, who are the signatories to Marple, if they are signatories to Marple, because not every port state control where ships go nowadays are signatories to Marple. So, the question is you're, this, the issue of compliance is a bit shaky for that reason you know whether people are using scrubbers or not so there's a lot of work that needs to be done by the imo on that issue there's clearly a lot of work that needs to be done by governments where ports where uh, uh, mfms could be used where they should be used in order to get them implemented and to deal with those local regulations
0: Terrific! Thanks so much. We we uh, probably have time f- for a few questions just on the issue of declining margins, so I will uh, switch over to that. And this question is for Greg. Um, Greg, what do you believe have been the major causes
4: of the declining margins in physical bunkers? Um, I mean, I think the lack of opportunity is basically a decided lack of acti- activity on in the large trading houses and um, they've all built systems around trading in residual fuel oil and as the opportunities shrivel they kind of look for other areas to get into and before you know it uh bunkers which was the area of the the residual fuel trading that the big guys never really want to touch is the only opportunity so we see you know as a global supplier we see competition from uh Still uh, major oil companies who were um, thought to be out of this business for a long time, but the likes of BP and Shell and Phillips 66 and Chevron are still in the bunker business. The big trading houses like um, uh, Glencore and VTOL and Mercuria, they're all in a way, they may not be direct physical suppliers, but they're in the supply chain. And one of the other things is a lot of them have gone to more desperate measures Uh, In terms of trying to help national oil companies finance their businesses. Uh, In particular, we're seeing a lot of uh, refinery financing deals that um, big trading houses can do like We'll provide the refinery with all its crude and we'll take back all its product And what those big trading houses essentially are doing is stepping between a marine fuel supplier and its source of product Uh, So margins getting stripped out of the business at all levels back-to-back trading. You've seen uh, and I'm sure Adrian could speak to it, but uh, decline in margins since the days of World Fuels' um, uh, eminence over that market at um, you know, $10 a ton to zero. Uh, we've got uh, inquiries that come into our house that have seven trading houses looking to buy 100 <coughs> tons of gas oil. You know, and you have, to, you have seven different traders trying to compete for 100 tons of gas oil that they may get a dollar a ton on, meaning that they're trying to do $100 worth of business. Um, Obviously, they're trying to build a reputation with the ship owner to show how good they are that they can do it so that they can get other business that's more lucrative, but it's just a a very tough environment today on the supply side.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, thank you. I think we may have time for one more question uh, for Mikhail on this issue. Kel, what are your views on where the profits mi- profits might come from for those dealing with declining margins in both physical bunkers and uh, bunker trading
3: well as a as a commodity trader and also as a marine fuel supplier we have an opportunistic approach so when we enter into bunkers we have a very very experienced team handling that field and in that sense we look very carefully at what our uh, counterparties are doing and whom we deal with and we vet them very carefully both from the Bunker trader standpoint that we deal with and uh, as well as the ship owner standpoint and going back to 2020 we will of course very carefully look and I encourage all of you involved with owners to very carefully look at what your plan is for 2020. Is it a viable plan and is it a sustainable plan because we feel that a lot of the owners that we deal with are going to take a responsible approach and are going to comply. Uh, but there need, does need to be some enforcement of this to make sure it happens. It's a very valid concern to make from the responsible ship owners to make sure that it does happen. But because the markets are becoming more transparent and they're very open and uh, you know, Singapore is a very good example of that, it takes away a lot of those niche opportunities. We don't have an issue dealing with any counterparty as long as it's a responsible counterparty. But our, our job is to make sure that we do our jobs efficiently and effectively and in that sense we'll try to streamline as much as we can to make sure that we deliver the most cost-effective product to our customers and something that makes sense to us as a company terrific terrific
0: thank you so much I think uh, we may have time for one or two questions from the audience I think we have one back there do we have a microphone gentleman back there <coughs>
5: Hi, good morning uh, this is for um,
1: i guess mark but could be answered by anyone uh, based on a comment you mentioned about the non-compliance uh, i agree in general now with Ica and having it's pretty easy to go ahead with non-compliance it's there's a benefit to it um, but later on i mean if you've installed the scrubber spent the time installing the scrubber do you really think there's any real benefit of non complying and, and also just general the non-compliance later if, if you don't have a scrubber, and you have heavy fuel oil that's not low sulfur, then you have some explaining to do. Um. Yeah, uh, I understand your point, point. and whether you have scrubbers or not, the thing is, as long as you're... So the, the eco zones is easy, because you're dealing with areas that are close to port, right? The problem is when you're in the middle of the ocean. And uh, so, so John might say that his company has a GPS approach, but that is not part of the regulations for IMO. There are no requirements to run GPS or constantly let the authorities know whether the scrubber is active or not. And the reason you wouldn't run it is because it, ta- it increases your consumption by, let's, let's use 4% as a ballpark number, right? So you're saving on your consum- consumption right away. Um, the other thing is, you know, um, if, if you're able to run any, even if you don't have scrubbers and you're able to run any amount of f- heavy fuel, right, that's a potential several hundred uh, dollars per ton savings. right? And I think a big part of this is going to be flag states because if your ships are all registered in a flag state that doesn't care, has, has maybe not even signed uh, the 2020 agreement yet, you know, what is their incentive to, to fine you? So one thing is when you're calling a port in the U.S. or, or Europe, you're going to have to comply while you're in port. But if you're flagged in, in I won't name any names of countries, but you know, if you're flagged in a, in a country that doesn't really care, what, what, what is, you know, what's our recourse against you? Uh, and I think that's, and, and that's what we're trying to figure out and trying to work with authorities to come up with a very, very uh, robust regulatory framework.
0: Thank you. I think that's all the time we have for our panel. Thank you very much. I just wanted to thank each of the panel members for their excellent contributions today, and uh, looking forward to the rest of the conference. Thank you.